Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And I'm your host, Doris Hansen. We're here on Thursday nights to talk about polygamy. I'd like to introduce our guest co-host, Earl Erskine. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here. Again, discussing this interesting topic. Very interesting tonight, that's for sure. (laughs) And together we do bring you information about polygamy groups today and as practiced in the early Mormon church. You know, we often receive emails from viewers who love or hate our show, or from people who love or hate us, both of us, or just one of us. (laughs) But we also receive requests to touch upon specific topics or events regarding Mormonism. Of course, our focus must remain on the topic of polygamy, both present-day Mormon polygamy and in the early days of this barbaric practice. We received an email request several weeks ago, and it read like this. Like this. I wish you would touch on the Bishop Snow incident in Manti and what was done to Thomas Lewis. We love your show, and thank you for it. So, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to uh, briefly discuss and explain the Bishop Snow incident in Manti, as well as a couple of other events during that same time period, as told by John D. Lee from his book, Mormonism Unveiled, or The Life and Confession of John D. Lee. Now, this is a very interesting book about Uh, early Mormon history and some of the hidden things that perhaps you may not even be aware uh, that took place in those days. I picked up my book at Amazon.com. I'm sure any place that Mormon books are sold you could probably uh, pick it up, but Amazon.com would be a good place to look if you're interested. We also want to tell the true story tonight of Parley P. Pratt and how his illegal polygamy practices played a part in his death. And of that fact, I'm sure many of our viewers are probably totally unaware. But we begin with the story of Thomas Lewis and Bishop Snow. By the way, this is a graphic and violent story. So if you're faint-hearted, don't watch it. And if you have anybody in the room that's maybe young children that, that maybe this isn't appropriate for, you might want to ask them to leave the room during this part of the show. And to preface the Thomas Lewis incident, we want to quote from John D. Lee's book, this book here, on page 284. There was a young man, a Gentile, working in Parowan. He was quiet and orderly, but was courting some of the girls. He was notified to quit, to let the girls alone, but he still kept going to see some of them. This was contrary to orders. No Gentile was at that time allowed to keep company with or visit any Mormon girl or woman. The authorities decided to have the young man killed. So they two, so they called two of the destroying angels and told them to take that cursed young Gentile over the rim of the basin. That was a term used by the people when they killed a person. The destroying angels made some excuse to induce the young man to go with them on an excursion, and when they got close to Schertz Mill, near Harmony, they killed him and left his body in the brush. Now, it was dangerous in those days to be a non-Mormon. Now, they called him Gentiles, but that's biblically 
a horrible <laughs> thing to say because non-Mormons aren't Gentiles biblically. But in the, in the, being a non-Mormon in the early settlement days of Utah was a dangerous thing to be. Later, the Indians found the body of this young man, and they reported it. And so John D. Lee goes on to say this about killing the non-Mormons. This practice was supported by all the people, and everything of that kind was done by orders from the council or by orders from some of the priesthood. When a Danite or destroying angel was placed on the man's track, that man died, certain, unless some providential act saved him. On page 285 of his book, John D. Lee writes that nearly all the Mormons and those who lived in Utah previous to the Mountain Meadows Massacre believed in the blood atonement doctrine. He writes that the leaders taught it and the people believed it. They believed that the priesthood members were inspired and couldn't give wrong orders even when those orders included blood atonement. They were taught that the person who ordered a killing to be done was the one responsible for the killing, not the person who carried out the order, since he was merely obeying the priesthood. So believing but blinded Mormons bought into that teaching and blindly obeyed the orders of the blood-atoning priesthood. This gives us a good preview of life and thinking during those days of early Mormonism in Utah. And perhaps the perpetrators in this next event remembered the orders of their beloved Joseph Smith when they carried out this cruel and atrocious torture on an innocent man. From John D. Lee's book, page 290, we read of those orders given by Joseph Smith. In Nauvoo, it was the orders from Joseph Smith and his apostles to beat, <coughs> wound, and castrate all Gentiles that the police, and this would be the Mormon police, would take in the act of entering or leaving a Mormon household under circumstances that led to the belief that they had been there for immoral purposes. I knew of several such outrages while there. In Utah, it was the favorite revenge of old, worn-out members of the priesthood who wanted young women sealed to them and found that the girl preferred some handsome young man. The old priest generally got the girls, and many a young man was unsexed, for refusing to give up his sweetheart at the request of an old and failing but still sensual apostle or member of the priesthood. So we see that this whole idea <coughs> began, excuse me, <coughs> began in the time when Joseph Smith was still alive. Yeah. And the doctrine of polygamy resulted in horrible and torturous acts against anyone who refused to bow down to their inhumane and tyrannical priesthood treatment. <coughs> Excuse me. And as we retell these awful events about the Bishop Snow uh, Thomas Lewis incident, please keep in mind what our Savior, Jesus Christ, said regarding actions of people in religious groups. Yeah, this is from Luke uh, 6, 43 through 46. It says, No good tree bears bad fruit, <coughs> nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, and do not do what I say? So remembering this <clears throat> as we go through this story tonight is very important. Yeah. The root is the foundation, and we talk about this a lot on the show. That's what Jesus taught. So let's look at the fruit 
of Mormonism's root as produced, <clears throat> that the root has produced in the story that we're about to tell. It was in the spring of 1857, and Warren Snow was a Mormon bishop in Manti, Utah. <clears throat> oh my goodness, I'm sorry. That? You want me to read that? He was in his 40s, and he had several plural wives, but there was a pretty young woman that Bishop Snow wanted to add to his harem. Now, this young girl told Bishop Snow that she was engaged to Thomas Lewis, a young man her own age, and he was a member of the Mormon Church, so she refused to marry old Bishop Snow. Sadly, like Joseph Smith before him, the bishop insisted that it was God's will that she should marry him, not Thomas Lewis. But the girl refused to give up the man she loved in favor of this old bishop and polygamy. Bishop Snow insisted it was the will of God that she should marry him. He told her that her young man could be got rid of, that he could be sent away on a mission or be removed in some other way. She was told that once she knew what the church expected of her, any promises that she had made to her boyfriend would not be binding. But she continued to refuse Bishop Snow's orders. Various Mormon people came to her and began putting the pressure on her, advising her to marry Bishop Snow. They also put the pressure on Thomas Lewis and warned him to stop dating this young woman and he refused to submit to their dictates, even though they promised him celestial and every other kind of blessing that they could think of. But nothing would stop this young man from giving up his fiancée to Bishop Snow. He said he would die before he would surrender the love of his life to someone else. Well, Bishop Snow would not be disobeyed, and so he called Lewis to go on a mission. Now, this was typical procedure, which started with Joseph Smith. He would send their men away, and then while they were gone away on a mission, he would take their women. With the boyfriend out of the way, he knew he could coerce the girl to become one of his plural wives. But, and we gasp at this one, everyone yeah. who knows Mormonism would gasp at this, Thomas Lewis refused to go on a mission. And we read from page 291 of his book what John D. Lee writes. This unusual resistance of authority by the young people made Snow more anxious than ever to capture the girl. It was then determined that the rebellious young man be forced by harsh treatment to respect the advice and orders of the priesthood. His fate was left to Bishop Snow for his decision. He decided that the young man should be castrated. Snow saying, when that is done, he will not be liable to want the girl badly, and she will listen to reason when she knows that her lover is no longer a man. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is awful. It's hard <clears throat> to read that. Um, yeah. Uh, a meeting was called, and Thomas Lewis was at the meeting. He was requested, and then ordered, and then threatened to leave the girl alone, but he still refused. John D. Lee tells of the next horrifying response by these wicked men. Again included in his book, the, the lights were then put out, an attack was made on the young man, he was severely beaten and then tied with his back down on a bench. When Bishop Snow took a bowie knife, performed the operation in a most brutal manner, and then took the portion severed from his victim and hung it up on, in the schoolhouse on a nail so that it could be seen by all who visited the house afterwards. And we need to say at this point, by their fruits, you shall know them. Yeah. From what's inside of them will come out, Jesus said. We just read that scripture 
John D. Lee continues in the story. Yeah, they <clears throat> left the young man weltering in his blood and in a lifeless condition. He dragged himself to some haystacks where he lay until the next day when he was discovered by his friends. The young man regained his health, but has been an idiot or quiet lunatic ever since. Isn't that sad? That would be mm. so sad. And the next day, Bishop Snow held a meeting and he told the people this, your duty is to the church. Well, that's a lie. He said they are to obey the leader's counsel and warn them of the dangers of refusing. He then publicly called attention to the mangled parts of Thomas Lewis that were on the nail and that were hanging up on display as a threat that they must obey the priesthood. Lee continues to write on page 292. Yeah, he concludes this little part of the story, I guess. To make a long story short, I will say the young man, young woman was soon after forced into being sealed to Bishop Snow. At what price a plural wife? Yeah. And we have to ask the question, polygamy, what love is this? Now you can find the full story of that in this book, Mormonism Unveiled, The Life and Confession of John D. Lee on pages 291 and 292. And I would like to make a note to all our viewers, especially our polygamous viewers. There is no biblical mandate to be a slave to a church. No one is your valid mediator but Jesus Christ. There is no church leader, no one in any bishopric or polygamy group hierarchy or priesthood authority that dictates God's will for you. Jesus is our only mediator and no human being can take his part uh, in it or any part in it. Jesus doesn't need help. And if you have been taught otherwise, you have literally been told a lie from hell. In fact, the Bible calls it doctrines of demons. We are required to obey Jesus. His commands are here in the Bible. We're not to serve a church. We do not love a church. We serve God and we love Jesus and anything else is idolatry and can lead to this kind of garbage. Yeah. There are also several historical references to this horrific story. We can put them up on the screen, but you can also go on to whatloveisthis.tv and click show notes and um, find the uh, places where you can read this story. Actually, you can read in more places than this. It is a well-documented actual history of uh, what happened in this incident in the early Mormon church. Where has God commanded that men castrate other men because they want his girlfriend as a polygamous wife? Our job is to tell the truth as given in the Bible and to remind folks that freedom of religion as far as God is concerned is this. We are free to go to heaven God's way or free to go to hell every other way. We are free to choose which direction we're going, but no one ever goes to heaven any other way but God's way. Now let's talk about the real story of Parley P. Pratt, which may very well be amazing news to many of our viewers. Parley P. Pratt was one of the original Mormon uh, 12 apostles, but unlike the Clorox version of today's Mormon history, which paints him as a great man and a great example of the Mormon faith, in reality, Parley Pratt was a real scoundrel. He was an adulterer, he was a wife stealer, and he uh, allegedly attempted kidnapping. Yeah. 
Parley P. Pratt was killed by an angry, jealous husband who was called, his name was Hector McLean because Pratt had stolen McLean's wife, Eleanor, and married her as his 12th plural wife while she was still legally married to her husband. Now, this whole story is a real puzzle, so you've got to listen carefully at what takes place. So we'll begin at the beginning. Parley Parker Pratt was born in 1807 and he was killed in 1857, which made him only 50 years old. He was converted and baptized into the Mormon Church in 1830. He married a woman who uh, died 10 years later, and six weeks after she died, he remarried a woman by the name of um, Mary Ann Frost. Now keep her name handy, because we're going to refer to her. About six years later, he took his first plural wife and for the next 12 years continued multiplying more and more plural wives to himself until he had a total of 11 wives. Parley Pratt fathered 30 children. Wow. He was secretly sealed to his fifth wife, Belinda Marden, in 1844. But Mary Ann, his first wife, was not aware of this secret plural marriage to Belinda. Well, Belinda traveled with Pratt on a mission to New York, and in 1846, she gave birth to a baby boy. Well, Mary Ann was still unaware of this, her husband and, and Belinda's secret marriage, and was concerned about this baby's birth, and so he, she asked Belinda if her baby was illegitimate. So Belinda told her the truth, that she was secretly married to her own husband, Parley Pratt. Well, immediately, Mary Ann separated from Pratt, but she didn't get a divorce from him until 1853 after she came to Utah. Well, Parley P. Pratt first met Eleanor McLean while he was on a missions trip to San Francisco. Eleanor became infatuated with Parley, but her husband, Hector, told Parley to stop visiting his wife, but Pratt continued to sneak in the house to see her, so Hector kicked him out of his house. <laughs> when Parley came back to Utah, Eleanor left her husband and children behind and followed him. And she and Parley were married as a polygamous couple, but she was still legally married to Hector McLean when she became wife number 12 to Parley P. Pratt. Now, in 1856, Pratt left on a mission to the eastern states and he took Eleanor with him. She wanted to get her children back, but the kids were now living in New Orleans with her parents. When they got there, she secretly snatched the kids and ran. She wanted to get safely back to Utah before her husband discovered they were gone. But he did discover the theft of her children, and he took off after her. He finally caught up with her and forcibly took the children back. Shortly after that, Eleanor was arrested, and so was Parley P. Pratt and he was taken to Fort Smith, Arkansas for trial. Mrs. McLean lost total custody of her children to their father, but Hector had Parley P. Pratt arrested for alienating the affections of his wife and attempting to abduct his children. Parley was acquitted because Eleanor testified that he hadn't been part of the kidnapping scheme. Now, whether she's discovering for him or not, <laughs> probably. we don't know, but probably is right. <clears throat> but on May 13th of 1857, Parley P. Pratt was murdered in Arkansas by the legal husband of his polygamous wife, Eleanor McLean. And we quote. 
Parley had been arraigned before the Supreme Court at Van Buren, Arkansas on a charge of abducting the children of one Hector McLean. He was acquitted, but it is alleged by anti-Mormon writers and admitted by the saints that he was sealed to Hector McLean's wife. McLean swore vengeance against the apostle who was advised to make his escape and set forth on horseback unarmed. His path was barred by two of McLean's friends until McLean himself with three others overtook the fugitive. When he fired six shots at him, the balls lodging in his saddle or passing through his clothes. McLean then stabbed him twice with a bowie knife under the left arm. Parley dropped from his horse and the assassin, assassin, after thrusting his knife deeper into the wound, seized a derringer and shot him through the breast. The party then rode off and McLean escaped unpunished. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This would make a good Western movie, wouldn't <laughs> it? It would. A lot of drama there. <laughs> yes, and Parley P. Pratt married Eleanor despite the fact that she was still legally married to Hector McLean. That's adultery. Yep. All this violence and tragedy for the sake of plural marriage, and, and, and they claim that God is responsible for polygamy and all the ravages that it causes to men, women, and children. This is a perfect story for yeah, to prove you that. Can, you can see the lust and the sexuality that's going on here. And the, mm -hmm. oh, yep, and the vengeance. Yeah. Of course, you know, we can never condone this vengeance and the revenge. We, we could never do that. But we also need to face the facts. And one of these facts is that Parley P. Pratt was not a martyr for the cause of Mormonism. I always thought he was. <laughs> I know. Didn't know so the details of this story. He was murdered because he stole another man's wife, married her as a polygamous wife, and attempted to steal her children. He was not a martyr, but a scoundrel. But now we're going to muddy up the waters even more. Yep. Marianne Frost, who was Parley P. Pratt's legal wife, before she divorced Parley, married Joseph Smith and became one of his already married polygamous wives. In fact, she had a child in 1844 that was named Moroni, who many people believed was fathered by Joseph Smith. But proof for or against that is not forthcoming. <laughs> Interesting to note, however, that she, <clears throat> Mary Ann Frost, left Parley P. Pratt because of his secret marriage to Belinda. Yet she herself had already secretly married Joseph Smith as his 30th plural wife. And oh this goodness. marriage to Joseph Smith wasn't for eternity only, like some of you might say, because she was resealed to Joseph Smith for eternity two years after his death. We read from Nauvoo Polygamy, page 208. On July 24, 1843, Party <coughs> P. Pratt married his first plural wife, Elizabeth Brotherton. Although Mary Ann was evidently sealed to Joseph that same day, she could not fully accept Parley's marriage to other women. She held out a decade and then divorced Parley in 1853. So why was it okay for, for, for her to marry Joseph Smith, but it's not okay for him to marry the, the uh, oh, it's just a mess. So we see Joseph Smith, who took 11, at least 11 women as plural wives, who, who, would all, who were already married to yeah. living and husband, living with their husbands. And then Mary Ann Frost Pratt, uh, was one of those married women Joseph Smith married, and she was Parley P. Pratt's legal wife when she married Joseph Smith, and Parley P. Pratt stole another man's wife, a non-Mormon woman, and trying to steal her kids too. 
What a mess. Yeah. Well, this is soap opera stuff. It is. <laughs> Many people believe that the Mountain Meadows massacre three months later was a direct result yeah. of Parley P. Pratt's murder. Yeah, the Fancher group, wasn't it, from Arkansas? Yeah. And when they came through, there was a lot of, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of concern about that. Yep. The, yeah. the McLeans were from Arkansas. Yeah. And Parley P. Pratt was murdered in Arkansas. Yeah. And three months later, the Fancher train comes, comes through. through and they're from Arkansas. And although there was there's no known direct connection, the Mormons were superstitious people. They were nervous about possible retribution for their violence and the many crimes against non-Mormons, which we have quoted some of those already tonight. So attacking the Fancher party was a natural response to their guilty and fearful consciences, uh, especially considering the Parley P. Pratt fiasco. But we have to ask, where is the morality of these early Mormons who claim to be God's kingdom? I think that's a valid question. I do too. I th you have to wonder what, uh, what, what were they thinking? Yeah, what uh, were they weren't using the Bible as their no. guide. That's okay. And, and we ask our viewers, is this behavior okay? And why does this culture whitewash and revere people of such low character? And please don't say we don't know what we're talking about. All this is documented history. In one of his sermons, Brigham Young said that the Mormon church had some very mean devils who resided in their midst. And we'll quote that. Yeah, they say these in the funniest ways. Journal of Discourses, Volume 6. And if the Gentiles wish to see a few tricks, we have Mormons that can perform them. We have the meanest devils on the earth in our midst, and we intend to keep them, for we have use for them. And if the devil does not look sharp, we will cheat him out of them at the last for they will reform and go to heaven with us. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of pride there, you know, a lot of boasting. <laughs> uh, arrogance. Yeah, arrogance. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can't get me down. He was in charge, there's no <clears throat> question about that. And, and that's, that's an example to back up their claims of being Christ's only true yeah. church. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, Orrin Porter Rockwell is another character of early Mormonism. He was definitely one of Brigham's meanest devils he's talking about. At least he had been a bodyguard for Joseph Smith anyway, and shedding blood was normal for him. In fact, that was his job. And then Wild Bill Hickman was another ruthless man who killed many people for Brigham Young. He wrote a book entitled uh, Brigham's Destroying Angel, where he confessed that he had committed violence and murders for the church and by command of Brigham Young. And so again, we asked the question, why all the violence and the sex in this church they claim is from God? Jesus said the root produces the fruit. Up until only a few weeks ago, the Mormon church refused to acknowledge the facts of Joseph Smith's sordid sexual adventures in early Mormon polygamy. But they have now admitted that what we've been saying all along about his polygamy <laughs> is in fact the truth. Yep. So who has been lying to whom? And how many more lies do they need to confess? Why is it okay for the leadership of the Mormon church and the polygamy groups to be held at a much lower standard for truth and honesty and moral integrity than that what they require from their own membership. We would like to hear some of our viewers tonight about this. Why does the membership continue to protect and support leadership in their history of deceitfulness? If you're afraid to call, 
for fear of being recognized, which would be the case in a lot of uh, a lot of places, especially the polygamy groups, you can call in and use an alias or leave the question and we'll read it and off the air. But we want your opinion on this important topic. We'd like to hear from you. We're going to take our break now and wait for the telephone calls to come in. We'd like to hear what you have to say about this and answer our question. Why support a church in their uh, deceitfulness and in their lies. Our telephone lines are open, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820, and we'll share our message with you now. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at TV at aboutpolygamy.com. We want you to know that we have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Also, free of charge to you, is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our show tonight. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And with our co-host, Earl Erskine, we have been discussing and reading historical uh, uh, accounts of some of the early violence, sexual violence and vengeance and revenge that took place with the early Mormon church. Um, We welcome callers with relevant questions tonight and comments. We ask that you be brief and please speak clearly so that we can understand and our viewers can understand what you're saying. Of course, we do welcome those who disagree with us as long as uh, you are uh, polite and allow a two-way dialogue. If you never called in before and have something to add to our discussion, we invite you to call. We'd love to hear from new callers tonight. Our number is 801-973-8820. And as we wait for the calls to come, we still have more to share with you. <laughs> oh, some interesting <laughs> quotes here. The, the early Mormons preached and practiced revenge 
on whomever they perceived as being their enemies. And after the death of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young actually added an oath of vengeance yeah. to the Nauvoo Endowment ritual, and that ritual included an oath to pray that God would avenge the blood of the prophets on this nation, referring to Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith's death. Eventually, the oath was removed, but the fact that the oath of revenge was required supports the historical violence of early Mormonism before and after they came to Utah. And here's more historical information that is worth mention. Two days after Nauvoo's police flogged dissenters, enforcers like Porter Rockwell began using deadly force against anti-Mormons. On 16 September, in his capacity as policeman, Porter Rockwell shot and killed several anti-Mormons. A week later, an anti-Mormon wrote his father about a young man who was captured by Mormons for burning their homes. The Mormons say he begged for his life, but after shooting him in two or three places, they cut his throat from ear to ear, stabbing him through the heart, cut off one ear, and horribly mutilated, castrated other parts of his body. That was the young man's condition when non-Mormon friends discovered his corpse the next day. D. Michael Quinn. The early Mormon leadership were a violent and vengeful people. They taught it, they preached it from their pulpit, and practiced horrible vengeance against those they considered their enemies. This stuff isn't taught in Sunday school or primary classes, but it is verifiable history. Another quote from the same book, page 89. The Mormon, uh, this is the Mormon hierarchy, Origins of Power by D. Michael Quinn. Other manifestations of Mormonism's theocratic ethics would soon begin in Kirtland and continue intermittently for decades. The official denials of actual events, the alternating con condemnation and tolerance for counterfeiting and stealing from non-Mormons, threats and physical attacks against dissenters or other alleged enemies, the killing and castration of sex offenders, the killing of anti-Mormons, the bribery of government officials and business ethics at odds with church standards. In other words, they did not practice the kindness to others that they demanded for themselves. And they certainly didn't practice the morality they dogmatized. And what happened to the teachings of Jesus of Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So according to Jesus, <laughs> people who use his name to perform miracles, even drive out demons in his name, does not prove they're doing God's work. Jesus said they are evildoers if they do those things, yet do not do the will of God. And we'll talk more about that, but we do have a phone call waiting. So let's go to line two, and Warren is calling from St. George. Hello, Warren. Uh, yes. You're on the I air. I just wanted to thank you for the program that you put on and to encourage us to read more and learn more about our early Mormon church, which I never knew until this recently until I start watching your program, and I want to thank you for it, and I do it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Warren. We appreciate your phone yeah. call. It, it does take just 
being willing to look. Yeah, being yeah. willing. Yeah, being willing. Being willing to face the truth, whatever you find. Thank you, Warren, for calling. Okay, I guess, I guess that was that was nice from Saint yeah, George nice. to, to call from down there. Okay, um, so according to the scriptures you just read in Matthew, yeah. that just saying things in the name of the Lord Jesus doesn't really mean anything. No, if you're not doing His will. Even the devils believe He's. he's That's Lord. right. Even the <laughs> devil believes that, and if they if they aren't doing the will of God. Uh, then Jesus isn't pleased with them. So let's read what yeah. Romans chapter 12, which is part of what we can discover the will of God is. Verses 19 and 20, it says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> Doesn't sound quite wow. what we were listening That's to. That's a lot before. different than the avenging the blood yeah. of the prophets, isn't it? That's probably and why we follow the Bible and not, <laughs> That's not the brethren. That's right. So now keep that statement in mind and compare it with the following quote. This is from Signe Rigdon letter to Apostle Orson Hyde. It was the imperative duty of the church to obey the word of Joseph Smith or the presidency without question or inquiry, and that if there were any that would not, they should have their throats cut from ear to ear. Wow. Love. <laughs> Did, yeah, love. What love is this? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. What love is this? Uh, God is love. Yeah. I don't read anything. I've never read anything in the Bible where God told us to do that. And we, again, we have to say um, our duty is not to the church. Our duty is not to our church leader. Our duty is to Jesus Christ, and He is the Word of God, and He is who we obey. The Word of God is who we obey. We don't obey human beings, especially if we can prove from the Bible that they're not doing the will of God. We, you're, you're, and, and in a polygamy group, I know it's even tougher for those in polygamy groups than it is for the mainline church mm -hmm. because their leadership pulls the priesthood and God's authority all together in one person and, and uh, makes you think that, that God is actually speaking through that person. He's not. God speaks through the Bible. That's where he speaks. So don't let them intimidate you and coerce you to follow what they're saying on threat of God's destruction because it just plain isn't true. Now, our telephone lines are still open. We do have a call here that's not ready yet. But if you want to give us a call and make some comments, we'd love to hear from you. 801-973-8820. So here we have the threat of cutting their throat from ear to ear if they don't obey the church. Yeah. But did Jesus teach us that the, to, to cut the throats of our enemies or to love and pray for them? Well, let's read Matthew chapter 5. Yeah, Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, so Jesus never, ever <laughs> taught to no. cut someone's throat. No. To castrate the people that, that in fact, you know, we, we did a show one time quite a while ago about uh, that they, they claim to follow Jesus, and yet they don't believe what he said. Yeah. They don't believe what he said. They don't believe there's no marriage in heaven, and Jesus said there wasn't. <laughs> they don't believe that we need to love and pray. At least the history, we're talking about the roots producing the fruit, yeah, right. early Mormonism. 
Um, and it wasn't very long ago that the polygamy groups were in a rampage killing people off. I mean, Irvin LeBaron killed, I think, 28 people. At least he had 28 people on his list. Um, killing people right and left for the sake of sex. Yeah. But polygamy. Well, can you imagine an oath of vengeance that the early members of the church, I guess polygamists and regular mainstream, would, would raise their arm to the square and, and be willing to, to seek the vengeance of mm -hmm. Hiram and Joseph. Yeah. And even until 1990, they had that cut, I will not reveal what's going on in this, uh, in this uh, yeah. ceremony, uh, yeah. at the threat of having my tongue pulled out, my ears cut, throat cut from ear to ear, and my yeah, my I, gut, my we did that before 1990. It yeah. was different ways life can be taken. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was the threat of, of revealing any of that information. Right, yeah. and that's from God. Did well, that? I've, did you ever question that? Uh, you know, I well, mean, it seemed odd, but I everybody was doing it, and that's what my family did. And I, I, I know I, it sounds so naive and so silly now to think that I could be that gullible. Yeah. to think that God would would require yeah. that of me and that uh, it, it's, it's hard just, to explain it's it hard to, it's hard to admit yeah. to being so gullible um, and yet i understand it i was born in polygamy group and yeah. i i believe that that all the garbage they were teaching me was true because yeah. i didn't know anything else well and i you know for all those years i guess i i never studied i never put two and two together i never thought about things and just uh, just accepted that I would understand when I needed to, and if I didn't understand it, I'd, I'd, I'd learn it later. What is the difference in your mind as a former LDS member, and I'm a former polygamy group member, right. what is the, the, in your thinking of serving and following a church and loving a church as opposed to serving and following Jesus? Well, for me, it was just absolute black and white. I did not have a sense of serving Jesus. Jesus had served me by paying for my sins. I did believe that. But my hand was raised in the temple to build up the kingdom of God, the church. Mm -hmm. uh, my pride was all about people's accomplishments, celebrities who might have joined the church or would speak well of the church. Mm -hmm. Everything was about the church and feeling good about the the accomplishments of the church. I've mentioned this before, but on my mission, I, I got to a point, it was years later, but I finally realized that I, I was not out there preaching Jesus. I was out there preaching the church. Joseph Smith, Need for Prophets, the Book of Mormon, the Plan of Salvation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about Jesus, the message that I, I think they've changed that a little bit now mm -hmm. maybe, but. Yeah. But that wasn't my message. Yeah. My message was to build up the church. And that's basically the way it was in the polygamy groups. But Jesus was mentioned at the end of our prayers, like he was sure. a magic word or something. Yeah. And um, anything that we was taught about him was certainly unbiblical, like, uh, like he had to learn how to become God. He wasn't <laughs> God. He uh, was Satan's spirit brother, which of course is a lie. And um, that he was a polygamist, and the only way he could become a god and earn his his godhood was to have been a polygamist. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's all early Mormon teaching. They were just following what the early yeah. what the Journal of Discourses and all these prophets of the early Mormon yeah. Church and taught. That, and we just repeat that kind of information in our sacrament meetings and our priesthood meetings and Sunday school lessons. We never delve into anything that would be controversial yeah. in our own minds. Yeah. And it's all very superficial, not very much depth, and certainly not biblical. Mm -hmm. Certainly uh, not biblical. No. Um, uh, Joseph Smith hit, 
hit the nail on the head when he said um, the Bible is true only as far as it's translated correctly, but the Book of Mormon is true. Yeah. Because that put doubt in the minds of people to read the Bible. Right. And so therefore, <clears throat> they'll, they'll make it secondary. Yeah. Or even worse. Yeah, they, have, they don't despise it, but they don't uh, give it any credibility or very little right, credibility. Right. And that's, of course, what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. He put yeah. doubt in Eve's mind about what God said. Yeah. And that's precisely what Joseph Smith did yeah. when he said that. We do have a call <coughs> now on line two. Line two, we have Sharon calling from Ogden. Hello, Sharon. Hello there. Yes. Uh, <coughs> You're on the air. Good about uh, the ladies of the time. I know they couldn't speak their mind like we can today, but I wonder if Mrs. Smith, Mother Smith, they refer to her, and Emma Smith, the wife of Joseph, what do you think they thought about this polygamy stuff? Do you have any written information on that, what these ladies may have talked about in quiet? Not what they've talked about in quiet. I, I'm not aware of all that. I know uh, Emma um, hated polygamy. In fact, Joseph Smith had to threaten her uh, with destruction in Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants because she hated it. And she, even after he died, she refused to admit that he was involved with it because she hated it so much. As far as Mrs. Smith, Joseph's, oh, Joseph's uh, mother, mother, I don't know. I, don't I wonder if she also means, do you mean also other polygamous wives? Because there are some that have written books or journals, mm -hmm. journal entries about their, how they felt about polygamy. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. Um, some of them... Like, I don't know what Joseph Smith's mom would have thought about some of this stuff. I, I've read her book, and I'm not sure I... I remember her I admitting that Joseph Smith yeah. had any extra marital affairs. But, you know, Sharon, um, there's no woman who likes it. You can watch the TV shows and all of that, and they, they suffer greatly. And they'll talk, someone will talk about their suffering. They'll say it's worth it and all that, makes them more Christ-like. But there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that we have to live polygamy to become more Christ-like. That's, that's absolutely correct. I wonder if Joseph Smith's daughters were a part of this? Um, I have not read anything I where his children, oh, I know his sons weren't, his sons hated it, tried to prove that Joseph Smith himself didn't uh, start the polygamy. I don't well, know about the daughters. In fact, didn't Emma teach her, Joseph Smith the third or the, or the youngest of their children, that, that Joseph didn't practice polygamy or that the church didn't even, or uh -huh. Joseph didn't, then he came out here to Salt Lake and found out otherwise, and mm -hmm. he kind of went off the deep end. He did. I guess, when he in, heard fact, that. in fact, if that hadn't have happened, and, and he come out here and he got a lot of affidavits from Joseph Smith's plural wives, the married women who had married to other men as well as, as some of the others. Is that where a lot of this um, comes from? Much of our information about Joseph Smith's polygamy comes from those affidavits wow. that we wouldn't have if his son hadn't come out here to try to prove Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist. Actually, uh, the truth came out proving that he was a very prodigious polygamist. And which, uh, of course, he had been hearing, the, the boy had been hearing from Emma that, that, that he Joseph didn't, didn't practice. Mm -hmm. But she knew he, he did. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, she did. So, Sharon, thank you for calling. I hope that uh, answered your question. 
Yes, it does, it, and I do appreciate you uh, being on the air. I just can't wait for Thursdays to get here so <laughs> I can listen to the two of you. Well, thank you, Sharon. Thanks, we appreciate Sharon. that. That's sweet. You know, it's Good funny. Night. I used to look forward to your show coming on Thursday nights, and I've I've said this uh, kind of. I was actually deceiving Carla because I <laughs> I wouldn't let her know that I was watching you. She'd come in the house and I'd flip the channel or something. <laughs> but I it really made me mad, and she'd she'd go off into another room and I'd switch back for a second. <laughs> it really it was so deceiving and it made me miserable. But you know you, you were providing information that that was supporting in the things that I'd heard and questions that I started having about some of this just Joseph Smith really being a prophet, yeah. was he or not? Yeah. And then to come to find out that uh, the, the truth about things, and I was grateful when she finally was willing to watch and listen <laughs> with you and, and to, to learn well, what you had to really say. And everything's documented. That's what's it's interesting. All it's all documented. Not, it's not your opinion about things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have some opinions about your time as a mm -hmm. polygamist, but these things that we've had over the months and years are, are so well documented. And we're using all Mormon documentation. That's another funny thing. Yeah, we're yeah. not using anti-Mormon documentation. It's no. all Mormon church, early Mormon polygamists, yeah. early Mormon diaries, early Mormon writings, yeah. and, and we prove it with the quotes and references that we give out. And yeah. people just have to check it out. It you know, shocking. one woman called me one time several years ago, I think I've mentioned this before, and I told her, read In Sacred Loneliness by Todd Compton. She was yelling at me because I was telling lies on the show. And I said, you need to read that book. It was written by a Mormon. And she says, I don't know, need to read it. I know that the church is true. I don't need to read anything. Well, That's had, the trouble. Yeah, we've had families disaffiliated because someone like me who's now learning things shares with their family and they don't believe it and now the church comes out and starts sharing yeah, and, some of these and details. And now they're fessing up to yeah, it. We things. have a letter, uh, Earl, I'd like you to read if you would for our oh, viewers sure. that we, we received um, I don't know, it's been probably three or four weeks ago. Yeah. That kind of fits in with what we've just been discussing right now. It's Doris, it says, just wanted to thank you for all your efforts. Both you and Earl have had a profound impact on my life along with my wife's life. My wife started questioning her faith when she saw your show. She initially kept it secret from me. Hmm, I relate to That's that. That's kind of the opposite. Huh? I then saw her watching you and was upset at first. She struggled with questions and wanted me to help prove you wrong. I told her that it was a personal problem she needed to figure out for herself. To be honest, I didn't know how to answer some of the questions she had that she'd heard on your show, and I really abandoned her in her struggles. One day, I finally watched your show with her, and Bishop Earl was sharing his story. I started to listen to you for another several months, still thinking you were just not sharing the truth. My wife was researching this whole time and kept telling me that what you were saying was true, and I would get mad at her, <laughs> mad at her every time. One day you were talking about Joseph Smith's boast. I looked it up and saw what you had been saying was 100% true. I was shocked. I felt at peace and realized that I was in a church or a religion of a man, and I looked on my new family research account, or family search account, since I still had a membership number and found out found that all of the wives of Joseph you had been talking about were all true, way more than I thought. My wife and I still talk about the absolute pure joy we felt to the point we were giddy with happiness and a feeling of true freedom swept over us. 
We had never talked about our struggles and question until meeting with Earl. From that point forward, I had discovered the true Jesus. He is King and the one and only High Priest. All my life and all my works I had done were truly as filthy rags and even a slap in his face because I thought that I deserved to be in his presence because of all I had done. I was so wrong. I have now accepted Jesus into my life and rely 100% on his grace. Thank you again. JL. Well, That's nice, isn't it? Yes, it's very nice to get letters like that as opposed to some of the <laughs> nasty ones we get. But it makes it all worthwhile when what we're saying is listened to by someone, they check it out, yeah. and they find the truth and the peace and love and joy uh, in Jesus Christ. Okay, we have line two, Julie calling from Wyoming. Hello, Julie. Hello. Hello, Julie. You're on the air. Uh, you've only got a couple of minutes, so ask your question. Okay, I just have a quick question for uh -huh. you. Um, I'm just wondering, who was it that made up all of the temple ceremony stuff? Or was it Joseph Smith? Well, Joseph Smith stole it from the Masons. From He was a Mason. He joined the Masonic uh, temple, and he oh. stole it from them. So the slashing of the throat and all of that stuff was... They had their own rituals. Yeah, the Masons didn't want their rituals to be made known publicly either, and so they had their own um, threats of, of, of telling the secret, the Mason secrets, and so Joseph Smith incorporated that in the Mormon thing. If you'll look up Masonry or Masons in online, you'll see the wording that we used in the temple, almost word for word, the handshakes, a lot of those are the same, and the wording, um, even at the veil, that that wording is all Masonic. Right. Um, yeah, that, when I went through the temple for the first time before I served an LDS mission, which I'm not LDS anymore, but <laughs> I just thought it was the strangest thing and came out of there in shock. Yeah. Went home and just, I, I kind of grieved because I just thought, what what just happened to me? Yeah. A lot of, we hear a lot of people say that, Julie, that it was shocking. And, and going back, continuing to go back, just makes it more acceptable in the mind of the person. But if you stand back and look at it, your first initial yeah. response is... It doesn't feel very godlike, does it? No. no. And I remember feeling very guilty for feeling not that feeling way. like yeah. it was supposed to be the greatest time of my yeah. life. Yeah. But you won't find now, it. When I stand back and look at it, I just, I can't believe yeah. that I believed it. And to see all my friends and my family members that still do, mm -hmm. because mm. I step back now and I look at it and I just think, how do these people believe this yeah. stuff? Well, thank you, Julie, for calling. We do appreciate uh, your saying Thanks, these Julie. things. And we hope that people who are listening will understand. We want to thank you for watching the show tonight. Thank you, Earl, oh, for sharing my pleasure. in this thank information. You. And uh, we will be back again, of course, next week to share some more information. But anyway, my closing comments is going to focus on God. You know, God knows who he is, and he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Religions, of course, will come along and they will change who God is so that people are believing a lie about God rather than God's own truth about himself. And of course, that practice is deceptive. And Jesus said, no lie comes from the truth. God requires truth. Psalm 145.18 says that the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth.
God does not delight in violence and retribution and terrorism of man against man. The foundation of Christianity is the powerful but humble Jesus. He has at his disposal all the power and authority of God in all the universe, but he never used that power as vengeance to his enemies. Nor did Jesus demand everyone's obedience at the risk of having their throats cut from ear to ear. But that's the foundation of Mormonism. There are polygamy groups and priesthood patriarchy today that use those threats and force and violence against their members who disobey, which proves that a bad root produces bad fruit. God is not the source of polygamy. He expects monogamy. He is the God of love and truth. And unless our foundation and worship and service is in truth, it means nothing to God. God is delighted only in those people who seek Him in truth. We are to believe only in Him, only in Him, not our church. We're, we're not created to believe in and to love and to serve a church, but to love and serve a person. And that person is only Jesus Christ. Thank you for watching and good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.